From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Making a living in Australia as a writer, musician or artist has become an increasingly tenuous proposition. In recent years, the art sector has been transformed. Lockdowns and streaming services have radically changed the market, with work becoming more insecure and worse paid. Now, the federal government has unveiled the first major injection of arts funding in a decade and a new national cultural policy it's calling Revive. So what will it mean for artists? Will arts work finally be treated like real work? And will this policy help Australia create more good art? Today, editor of The Monthly, Michael Williams, on whether the Albanese government's arts policy can revive the sector. It's Wednesday, February 8th. Michael, you've worked in the art sector for a long time now. You've worked in publishing, you've worked with festivals, and, and you're now the editor of The Monthly. So you've spent your career speaking to artists, mostly to writers. Over that time, what opinion have you formed about how the art sector would best function in partnership with the government? What should that relationship ideally look like? We are incredibly lucky in this country in the way the arts is regarded by government. In the US, for the most part, private enterprise is expected to prop up the art. It's supposed to either be commercially viable in its own right or supported by philanthropy. Happily, however, in Australia, there's a a kind of different approach and a different approach that you can track back directly to that period in the 70s when Gough Whitlam and his government turned their attention to the arts. Our program has three great aims. To promote equality, to involve the people of Australia in the decision-making processes of our land, and to liberate the talents and uplift the horizons of the Australian people. Under Gough Whitlam, there was at least a recognition that what we needed in Australia was a system for supporting the arts and artists that didn't come from the politicians, that actually it was time to build an institution that would keep these things at arm's length from government, but that would let artists and art makers and experts in the field kind of make the calls about where the money should be applied. So after the initial founding by Whitlam of the Australian Council, that's kind of often talked about as the golden era for the arts in Australia. You saw a proliferation of small and independent galleries, art makers, small independent publishers breaking free of the previous hegemony of UK publishing. One minute past two, this is Double J. Wait for the sky. Uh, you had, you know, the rise of Double J, you had the rise of a kind of youth culture, you had on our screens films that kind of iconically defined what an Australian image might look like. We'd better be careful. Uh, I promised Mrs Appleyard I'd have you a lot back at the college by eight. Not just for the world, but also for ourselves in a way that before then had, had really struggled to take hold. From the outset, the idea there was that we needed to be bold. We had to create an environment where risk could be taken. There was a kind of recognition that the best art comes out of environments where risk can be taken, but risk is a product of privilege. 
if we have an art scene where only the people who can afford to be artists are artists, then it's going to be pretty middle of the road. Mm. Okay, so with that in mind then, knowing what it actually takes to support artists throughout their careers, knowing what works, can we talk a bit about what we've actually seen happen over the past decade under coalition governments, if we go back to Tony Abbott and his arts minister, George Brandis, through to Turnbull and and Morrison, what did we see happen? Well, look, it would be a mistake to attribute the culture wars entirely to the Abbott government. But if you think back to those early days of Abbott in power, it was waging war against what they saw as their ideological enemies. We talk a lot about the cuts to the ABC, for example, but the arts bore the brunt of it. ABC, universities and the arts, all the big institutions that fermented dissent against the Abbott government's agenda. And so what it effectively meant was Brandis's first order of business was to turn his attention to the Australian Council and to think about the ways in which gutting it and devolving power from the Council would allow them to strengthen their arm. Governments are very fond in the arts of using kind of little catchphrases and market-tested kind of branding for things. And so this was called the Catalyst Fund. This was how great art was going to happen. But what Catalyst was code for was the death of arm's-length funding of the arts. What Brandis was doing was saying, I know that I've got this whole bureaucracy that's there designed to work out what the arts needs and how to support it. I'm going to redirect that money back into my office, ministerial discretion. Brandis was a big fan of the opera. He was a big fan of particular art forms. He was a big fan of particular companies. He was a big fan of supporting a particular sector of society. And so funding the arts suddenly no longer became about recognising a complex and fragile ecosystem. It became about, as with so much else, ways to support one's mates. And as a consequence, the entire kind of structure of arts funding was put in danger. Mm. Okay, and the lowest point for the arts sector under the coalition government, I think, came towards the very end during the pandemic. Lockdowns exacerbated every other kind of long-standing issue, long-standing challenge that the sector was already facing. Was there a particular moment during that time, during 2020 or 2021, when it really hit you just how difficult things had become for the sector? Yeah. One of the most acute examples of it was when JobKeeper came in and large sectors of the arts were kind of excluded from that, weren't given packages to support them. Their work wasn't recognised as work, essentially. This was a grand indulgence and they weren't the people that the government wanted to help. Even on the few occasions when Scott Morrison tried to address this or tried to talk about this, he would very quickly pivot in the way he talked about the arts to talking about the tradies who made sets in theatre companies. And there was a a kind of job that he understood as a job. And then there were a whole lot of people in skivvies waving their hands around that were alienating in some way. And so were able to be a kind of massive blind spot. In the book industry, it was an interesting period because actually uh, sales of books did pretty well. But something like being a writer, something like the arts, is about belonging to a community. It's about connections. While book sales were good, there's something a bit deceptive in that figure because they were the sales of books by established and known authors, which meant that if you're a new or emerging writer who was bringing out their first work in that period, you were sinking without a trace, without people being able to browse in bookshops, without book launches, without writers' festivals, all of a sudden you are publishing kind of effectively into a vacuum. And the tragedy of it is that 
an entire kind of generation of writers might not be able to build a sustainable career because of what happened to them then. And, and that's heartbreaking. Mm. So this is the situation then that the Labor government walks into when it takes power. Last year, an arts industry, I think in despair, how big is the challenge for them to turn this around? Look, as you say, the expectations were acute. They went into the election and their policy was that they would build a policy after they were elected. A bold gambit, but one that means that when it was finally time to announce, all eyes were on the Minister Tony Burke. We'll be back in a moment. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For longtime editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro therapy. Yeah, yeah, if that's no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's my absolute privilege to welcome the artist formerly known as DJ Albo, uh, but, but now the Prime Minister of Australia. Please put your hands together for my friend Anthony Albanese. You were there, Michael, at the SB, the, the live music venue in St Kilda in Melbourne, when Anthony Albanese and his arts minister launched the government's new arts policy. Can you take me there and tell me about it? Well, thanks very much, Josh. Uh, let's just hope I'm a better PM than I was a DJ. <laughs> Can I also... Yeah, it made a certain amount of sense to be standing launching the policy in the SB. Every year when I vote in Triple J's Hottest 100, I'm struck by how much talent there is in Australia, how difficult it is to narrow it down uh, to those 10 songs that you're able to nominate. There were lots of jokes about the Prime Minister's former career as a DJ. There were lots of jokes about the fact that the floor was less sticky uh, than people remembered it being. This is about our soul. This is about our identity. It is so important because it's about who we are and being able to express ourselves and about our quality of life. Most of all, there was a kind of electric anticipation. Were the government bringing to the table what the arts industry was so desperately crying out for? And so does this do that? Does this policy respond to what the industry needs? Can you talk me through the details? There are three things you want from a new arts policy. The first is the rhetoric. The second is the kind of structural integrity of what's being proposed. And the third is the money. On the rhetoric, it was incredibly heartening. Both the Prime Minister and the Arts Minister 
banged a drum about understanding the importance of the arts and centrality to our society. They talked about putting First Nations voices and First Nation artists first, and that was incredibly well received in the room. It gives me great pleasure to introduce the Honourable Tony Burke, Minister for the Arts and Minister for Employment and Workplace Relations. Welcome, Tony. They talked about artists as key workers, as uh, the ways in which we needed to understand both their creative and imaginative contribution, but also their financial contribution. Today, the Albanese Labor government has a message for you. You touch our hearts and you are a $17 billion contributor to the economy. (laughs) On the structure... It's a kind of slightly more complicated question and it remains to be seen how effective the prescription is. At the centre of the reform is a reimagined Australia Council. Part of the way they're identifying that needs to happen is that uh, the Australia Council needs to be made stronger. The new body will be known as Creative Australia. The Brandis Cuts will be returned in full. They're rebranding it, they're restructuring it, they're adding different uh, parts to the entity, but they're not just funding business as usual. And that, I think, for people in the arts is heartening. On the third front, on the money, it's promising, but it's a start rather than a, a final point. When Keating announced the Creative Nation policy back in 1994, he announced an additional $252 million for the arts. Burke announced an additional $280 million. In real terms, there is a point to the fact that Burke and Albanese both talked about the fact that the funding was restoring the Brandis cuts. You know, this was about revival rather than uh, excellence in going forward. It's necessary, it's heartening, but it hardly represents bold new frontiers. Mm, OK. And the issue for the arts, though, I mean, it isn't all about the funding. It's not all about the money, although obviously it's a big part of it. And I think one of the challenges that the arts industry is facing of many is the the changes that we've seen to distribution models particularly. So that's changed the way that artists are, are valued, the way that they're paid. If you look at music streaming, to take one kind of example, there are, there are really big challenges for musicians to get paid fairly for the work that they make. Those sorts of problems, are they really something that government intervention can fix? Look, I think they're essential to a certain extent. One of the changes to the Australian Council is the introduction of a new division within it devoted to thinking about artists as workers, thinking about their rights, thinking about security, recognising the ways in which both tenuous employment, casual employment, variable pay structures, sexual harassment in the workplace, all these things, artists are traditionally a bit adrift when it comes to how they're protected against these dangers and risks. So from that perspective, there's something very heartening about a government saying, okay, we recognise the need to professionalise and support artists to professionalise. That can only be a good thing. Some of the structural changes are more in line with kind of bringing up to date things that have been kind of shamefully lacking for years. You see that in things like uh, for writers, the traditional public lending rights and educational lending rights mean that a writer, when their book gets borrowed in a library, gets a certain fee each time. Until this new policy, digital lending rights were not included in that. Audio lending rights were not included in that. That's a crazy gap. But that's what happens when you're relying on a policy that was written in the 1970s to be relevant in 2023. Similarly, Australian content quotas for streaming services, for example. We've had that battle with free-to-air television. That's been more or less won in the past. 
it's almost like an administrative oversight that it hasn't applied to the new means of televised content. And yet it takes a kind of bold new policy just to play catch up. Mm. And in terms of measuring the success of an arts policy, it's obviously an incredibly difficult thing to do. But one way to look at it is to ask the question of whether this particular policy is actually going to produce better art, so better music, better film, better TV. Um, What are your thoughts on whether that's likely? Uh, Well, that is a can of worms, the question of better art. I mean, every arts policy tries to claim that it's purely about the art, but the relationship between the art and the commerce, between the elite and the accessible, is a complicated one. Is it the job of government to bail out stuff that will never be commercially successful and prop it up, or is it its job to back winners that are going to find more and more audiences and more and more readers and viewers and listeners and whatever. You know, we, we look at something like the local content quotas for streaming services. There's every chance all that will mean is we get 15 new spin-offs and iterations of The Bachelor Australia or Married at First Sight, rather than kind of new written content that we're all kind of moist-eyed and saying is the great storytelling of our age. Success is measured in many different ways, and one person's art is another person's dross. This policy hopefully creates the room for much more of both. Hmm. Maybe an easier question is, will it make Australia a better place to be an artist? That's the crucial question. Will it be possible to live and work as an artist in an Australia underneath the revived policy? Look, I certainly hope so. I'm not sure that it completely saves the arts from the world of only the privilege to be able to do it but it's a step in the right direction. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ruby. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, interest rates have risen again. In the first meeting of the RBA board for the year, the Reserve Bank raised the cash rate by 25 basis points. The board, in its statement, said that further rises could be needed over the next few months to bring inflation back into the target range. And the death toll from an earthquake affecting southern Turkey and northern Syria is approaching 5,000, and the World Health Organization says it fears there could be over 20,000 people dead. The earthquake struck communities still devastated by the impacts of the Syrian civil war and the ongoing displacement, poverty and security risks. 